are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. From March 29th through the 31st, the University of Oregon hosted the 2018 Annual Festival for the Society of Electroacoustic Music in the United States, or Seamus. I had an eight-channel fixed-media piece being performed called In Excess. I was able to catch up with other composers for interviews in between the 11 concerts over three days to talk about their pieces that were being performed on the festival. The next three episodes of Lexical Tones will feature those interviews and pieces. This week, we are featuring all pieces that had live performers and electronics. I'll speak with composers Annie Huixing Xie, Nathan Herring, Becky Brown, and Jacob Sudol. We'll start off with Annie Huixing Xie. Born in Taiwan and raised between New Zealand and Australia, Annie's interest in composition focuses on the examination of space in musical, personal, and physical capacities. Her works have been commissioned and performed by entities such as the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, Ensemble Dal Niente, Platypus Ensemble, the Mivos Quartet, and Redfish Bluefish. Annie completed her doctoral studies at the University of California, San Diego, and is currently an assistant teaching professor of music at Carnegie Mellon University. So I'm here with Annie Huixing Xie, and we just got out of the concert that uh, her piece was performed in, and her piece is called The Warmth of the Nebula, and it's for piccolo and, was it 8-channel electronics? Yes, 8-channel. And uh, the the piece you know obviously i'm i'm talking to her right now so it made a big impression on me and i was actually wondering you know where or how did you get the how were you inspired to choose the piccolo because the piccolo is not normally an instrument that we really think of as having a solo voice or having a a large range of expression or something usually we think about it just in the in the orchestra as oh it plays the high notes so what was what was it about the piccolo that really got you interested to write this piece? So there were two main reasons, really. So first of all, my friend uh, Michael Matsuno, who's a really great uh, flautist in San Diego at UCSD, he asked me for a piece. And so, uh, and I think about all the possible flutes I could use, and then I came to the conclusion that there are only two that I haven't really written for. One is the bass flute, and the other one is the piccolo. And so in this piece, I actually used both of them. All the electronic part was recorded on an open hole um, bass flute. And then the solo part is given to the piccolo. And so for us, it was a very interesting challenge um, because, like you said, it's so hard to think about piccolo as a solo instrument. And so how expressive can it be? And what is its relationship to the bass flute tape, um, tape part? So yeah, so that, it was a very interesting um, uh, experience working on this piece. And you said the, the bass flute provided a lot of the, um, the source material for the electronics. How are you kind of processing the bass flute into, I mean, the, the piece, as we will hear, it has these these kind of very delicate, sparse, and um, constantly evolving textures. So, so how did you take sounds from the bass flute and and turn it into what we heard, which didn't register to me as as being 
performed or, or coming from a flute at all? Um, so Michael and I just did a bunch of um, improv sessions in the recording studio. Um, but I did tell him I want to figure out a new way of using modophonics, which I have been using for some time. But I never felt like I used it in the way that I think it can be best utilized. So he basically came in with four monophonics on the bass flute and say here are the four that are very secure and I think can provide a lot of different colors depending on how you use them. So we recorded um, various versions of him playing these things and then I went back and listened to um, each one of them and then each take of them and to pick up the take that I think has the most expressive quality. And then from there onwards, a lot of the um, processing, um, I'll call it an editing maybe more, is um, I layer maybe 40 tracks of the same monophonic, and then you know you get this massive sound of the same thing, and then I EQ it and bring out the different frequencies individually and envelope each sound of the same um, recording differently. So in a way, you create so many different shades of the same color. Um, and then the other aspect of that is now I have figured out what my sound objects are, which is made out of these um, monophonics. I then um, drew out um, kind of like a time scale graph of um, in eight channels in terms of how they will move, how they will interact with each other. So actually plotting the electronics in the software was the last part of the whole process. So everything was map mapped out completely and then we went into the actual space that was the piece premiered in um, and just mapped out the whole specialization aspect of that. So yeah, so that's kind of how this whole um, texture came about and of course there being a bass flute is very very airy yeah. um, so a lot of that air which was not planned to be used as part of the, the sound um, texture but because there was just so much of that and then again I layer like maybe 40 to 60 track of the same breathy sound and the same um, whistle tones you get this very strange um, texture that is both hollow but heavy at the same time which I think in to, to go with the specialization itself, it actually creates a very interesting um, dynamic within the, the, the sound itself. So yeah, so like this whole idea of clouds and a continuously mutating entity kind of came about. Yeah. Um, the piccolo writing, I mean, that, it, the, it seems like you are kind of dealing with um, sparse gestures but very specific, like you definitely have a specific language that you are uh, projecting with the piccolo throughout the piece. So how, you know, what were you thinking about in terms of how you are writing for the piccolo? So um, a lot of the piccolo writing was inspired by who was going to play it. So Michael was, I, I know, um, Michael as a great friend as well as a really wonderful performer and so I had an image of this piece in my mind like a visual image of what it feels like and looks like before I actually begin writing and sourcing materials so I just always thinking about like visualizing him as um, kind of like somebody being surrounded by 
a blanket of moving um, entity and trying to grasp things yeah. out of it. And so this grasping um, gesture kind of evolved into a lot of these um, jumps and um, slight bending of notes um, uh, and to and also to like the actual relationship between the notes and the recorded material a lot of the notes is taken from um, the recording uh, recordings of the monophonics like you know the different um, the different resonances became the pitch materials, and then Michael's job, or the piccolo, piccolo player's job, is always to try to capture that. And sometimes it lines up, but sometimes it's like, um, you know, it's not quite in tune, it's beating really, really heavily. And so these kind of subtleties became something very interesting for me in terms of writing this piece. And so, so yeah, so the writing itself has a lot to do with what I imagine the solo is in a character in interaction with the fixed tape. There was one moment, and I think it was right, because this, this piece, it, that's, I guess, spatial movement of the piccolo player, um, is that happens in every performance, or was that specifically for this piece? Did, in, in, a, in a regular stage hall, is the piccolo player off stage at the very beginning? Uh, no. Um, it hasn't been, let's put it that way. So in the, in the past times when it's performed, the piccolo player is usually towards um, the side of the stage and hopefully, so the piece is supposed to be performing in total darkness. Of course, being okay. a daytime concert yeah. with huge, beautiful windows, it was really quite impossible, right. but that's okay. Yeah. Um, and so the idea is you should feel the piccolo player is in presence in the room, but you don't know where the sound's coming from. So that adds that extra layer of ambiguity, spatial ambiguity. And so the, the piccolo player, um, ideally should have the piece memorized. And having said that, it hasn't been done before. Um, and so having the piece memorized means the piccolo player can become essentially the ninth channel, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so in a way that you're not only dealing with um, trying to decipher what is life, what is fixed, um, being both materials are quite fluid in, in that kind of capacity, but also if the piccolo player also is moving about then you really lose that sense of who is actually what sound is actually coming up from where which is something that I was I am really interested in you know this ambiguity of um, perceptual um, experience right right yeah yeah, there's in this particular performance, basically the what we just saw, the piccolo player started off in kind of a, a corner of of this kind of square performance space, and then moved more or less to as much to the center as she could. And then right when she moved to the center, there was this moment where you just held a kind of uh, very breathy flutter tongue for a long time. Gorgeous. Oh my God! Like right when that happened, I was like. Oh, you've got me. You've got me. You hooked me. Like, <laughs> I'm. I, you, you. You can do anything else for the rest of the piece, but you've got me just based on that. That was gorgeous. Yeah, I think um, that was the moment that both Sarah and I identified um, when we worked together this morning for the first time. That's right. Um, uh, that I knew that moment has that that capacity to offer, and it has been, um, you know, has been used when when other piccolo player 
um, to perform the piece. But for Sarah, she also very intuitively found that spot as something she can linger on. Also, that is the first time we see the performer coming to the to light, essentially. And so that moment acts both as like a buffer zone, just in case, you know, timing-wise kind of go a bit sideways yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, it's like including choreography, staging and all that. So, so yeah, having a moment there when she, when the audience both perceive her as somebody who's living and performing as well as seeing that her material kind of line up with the tape material for the first time. I think those two elements combined together really created um, a strong um, imagery in that, that, that piece. What does the title mean? And the title again is The Warmth of the Nebula. So um, this is going to sound a little bit strange, but the way I thought about the, the airy sounds, um, and also this comes down to when I was editing the sounds and layering in uh, like 40s or 60 tracks of the, the air sound, there's something really strange um, I personally felt about this, this quality is that it's not only airy, but it's also pretty damp. <laughs> right, because like, you, it, and also because I know how it was produced, and so like this idea of this is like a wet cloud yeah, happening yeah. Um, was definitely in there continuously throughout the writing process. And so it also makes you feel, or it made me feel like this is a warm air. Mm-hmm. And so, and you know, and the more, um, uh, in a more descriptive way, um, I did want to create um, a rotating sound image that encapsulates the audience inside. And so for me, the idea of something that provides some kind of warmth and um, uh, an engulfing quality was, yeah. was, uh, was, was the idea behind it. And then so, of course, you have the piccolo who tries to penetrate beyond this texture all the time and into eventually really leaving the texture yeah. at the end. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, just before we go, can you tell everyone, you know, where they can find more of your music and where they can connect with you on like social media or website or something like that? Yeah, of course. Um, you can find me on Facebook, which is just my full name. <laughs> and you can also find my website, which is, again, my full name, anyhuixinxie.com, without all the hyphens, with any hyphens. Um, so, yeah, I think those would be the two main places that you can find me. So we're going to listen to this now, and this is The Warmth of the Nebula by Annie Huixinxie. And who is the performer on this recording? So the performer is Michael Matsuno and was recorded at University of California, San Diego in December.
Next, I spoke with Nathan Herring. Uh, Nathan and a couple other composers and I were getting dinner at the time, and we talked about his piece for voice and electronics. Nathan Herring is deeply interested in the use of live electronics to expand the artistic capabilities of traditional instruments and augment their timbral horizons while enriching their expressive and improvisational possibilities. Nathan's works have recently been featured at the International Computer Music Conference in Shanghai, the Toronto International Electroacoustic Symposium, Noise Floor Festival at Staffordshire University in the UK, and Valencia International Performance Academy in Spain. Nathan is a master's student at Bowling Green State University studying with Dr. Eleni Lilios and Dr. Michael Keane, and completed his undergraduate degree in composition at Western Michigan University with Dr. Christopher Biggs and Dr. Lisa R. Coons. So we're here with Nathan Herring, and we heard uh, his piece last night, and that piece was called Medical Text, page 57. Uh, first of all, good to see you. I think the last time was at Eleni's house for the for the Kier event, and uh, you've been traveling a lot, going to a lot of festivals. That's great. Your piece has quite a specific title, Medical Text, page 57. So what's going on there? What is What is the text, and how are you using it musically? So, the text is coming from a literal medical text. Um, it's actually called Cyclopedia of Medicine, Volume 1. Uh, it was published in 1845. And uh, while I was searching for a text for another piece, actually, um, my dad is a medical doctor, like, <laughs> saves people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my dad suggests he's not, he's not a useless doctor, right. like yeah. like any of us sitting at the exactly. table. <laughs> the, um, so he, I was looking for a text. <laughs> oh, you're good. No, it's just gonna add to the recording. We're getting a beer right now. <laughs> oh yeah. You have to cheer? Cheers. Cheers. Hey. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's some good stuff right there. I'll use that later. Ah, yeah. All right, so continue. I was looking for a text for an uh, unrelated piece, and my dad suggested uh, he has a huge collection of old medical texts uh, that he, just out of curiosity and interest, has pieced together, uh, and it's acted more as a decoration in the, the back of our house for years, but uh, he was like, you should check it out. They... Uh, they had no idea what they were talking about at the time, so uh, it's almost entirely uh, like really amazing, uh, like poetic musings about like what might be going on. Uh, it's really fascinating to see. But uh, page fifty-seven is specifically about age, as like as a terminal condition. <laughs> um, and it seems weird that they have to write that, you know, like, you're going to die. If, if nothing else gets you, you're, well, age will eventually get you. You're, yeah, you're going to die from death. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there were a couple other chapters that, uh, you know, my dad was like, oh, why not? You know, there's a chapter on gout. There's a chapter on, like, you know, you could explore, uh, you know, like, <laughs> uh, there's a whole, there are a lot of options, uh, but I, I came upon uh, the chapter on 
age and it started with like beautiful burgeoning nascent life and it moved through like the whole process until eventually uh, you know it described it as moving from growth to like the onset of eventual unerring decay you know the resulting inevitably in death uh, but it it really made a beautiful it was like it was a really beautiful journey and again it, it's highly inaccurate yeah. <laughs> uh, the and most of it was basically poetry but uh, I chopped out uh, my favorite parts and I, I rearranged it in a way that uh, uh, a lot of what's driving it is uh, like how coherent the text is uh, and like proportions of sections that are relying off of either like a smooth continuum from like complete obfuscation of the text towards actual meaning coming through in the text uh, like actual syntactical value <laughs> uh, or like really harsh uh, cuts and juxtaposition between like just complete uh, nonsense textural crazy extended techniques uh, and then again right up against meaningful text uh, and the the ordering of it is specific to, yeah. to how I wanted it to develop, develop and um, be kind of revealed over time and by the end he's just uh, speaking well he's shouting uh, yeah. <laughs> some um, some of the more uh, like end of times stuff from it <laughs> So that the person we heard shouting uh, last night <laughs> was uh, Lucas Marshall Smith, and did you write this piece for him, or you know, like he he gave just a knockout performance? So it seems like he, you know, there there's something there. So yeah, Lucas did a absolutely astounding job. He did really great. Uh, it was not. It was actually it was not originally written for Lucas, uh, although I take it as a as a huge compliment uh, whenever um, whenever someone says that uh, because it really is it's amazing I think to see how different people interpret it. Uh, the piece has actually been performed by four people now, and there's a really amazing room for performer input and agency into the piece, uh, and it's able to because a lot of it is live, uh, it's able to respond to however they interpret it and whatever their strengths are. And uh, I thought Lucas's strengths played extremely well into the piece. Uh, it was originally written for Daniel Bayat, who uh, has a contemporary vocal trio uh, called 3DB, based out of uh, Bowling Green. But uh, we met while he was doing his undergrad at Bowling Green, and he has now returned to Hawaii. Uh, so it's a hard life. <laughs> um, so it's much it's much harder to uh, get Daniel from Hawaii than yeah, to to get anyone else. <laughs> uh, but that's also led to a lot of really amazing collaborations with other performers who are interested in this kind of uh, really extended vocal work. Working with Daniel was amazing consistently, um, and it kind of led to there are a lot of really um, specific techniques. Uh, that are explored and called for that like Daniel was particularly really good at uh, doing but the score itself allows it maintains really highly directional improvisational elements uh, so there are there's still close control over different parameters and uh, directions while still allowing like if you can't do some of the things that Daniel specifically can do it, it adapts and maintains uh, 
really strong coherence as a as a piece, like identifiable identifiability as a piece. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, listening to the recording that you sent me, I was assuming that the majority of this was fixed media. And then from listening, from seeing the performance last night, it's quite clearly mostly live. So, so what kinds of things are you doing with the electronics? Uh, I would, I would actually describe it as like half and half. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot, a lot of the fixed media originally actually came from Daniel's roommate, who was also in the the vocal trio. Uh, he did a lot of the throat singing that like Daniel couldn't do uh, that, well, it's not that he couldn't do it. The, the, if he listens to this, I don't want him to be <laughs> You suck, Daniel. <laughs> uh, Daniel's absolutely amazing. The, and, uh, but his roommate can do uh, like another collection of really absurd things. Uh, and he's actually performed it in the past as well, and it's interesting to see like where he can supplement his own crazy, disgusting strengths into the piece. <laughs> So part of it was recordings of, we actually sat in a room for hours together, uh, all making sounds and like recordings of Daniel and recordings of his uh, roommate, uh, David Breen, uh, and just recordings of, uh, you know, we cracked bottles, we like uh, got all kinds of uh, close mic'd sounds that I thought would be uh, like timbrely relevant uh, to what was going on. And we recorded, you know, our own gestures. And so half of the piece is, uh, you know, manipulations of that, uh, and a lot of it is also, I sat down and recorded the piece step by step with Daniel before any of the electronics existed, and then I ran that through processes that I had made uh, and structured it throughout the piece that way. So some of it, and then uh, the rest of it is those, a lot of those same processes happening uh, just in real time, yeah. Uh, in the past I had made, uh, pieces that I'm really thankful for that uh, were kind of more more floaty, more uh, dependent on it, like however the performer felt like doing the pacing. But uh, I tried to have much tighter gestures and arrivals in this right. piece. So a lot of it, um, there are, there's a little arrival slider going on to give like still a huge amount of freedom uh, like within that duration, but then still having the person arrive right on uh, the end of it. Yeah, and I think that that's what I think one of the strengths of the piece is you get these really, you know, big gestures, the very tightly synchronized gestures, and it gives the, it, it, you know, you, I could have seen this piece taking a more, you know, kind of wandering feel maybe, but it, it but it does feel really tight. So it's interesting to hear that there is that kind of, um, the room for the performer to be in there. So the recording we're going to listen to. Um, is is that the original performer? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, what, and what was his name again? Uh, yes, that's uh, Daniel Bayat doing it in the the original recording. And before we go, can you just tell people, you know, what your website or social media, how you how um, people can find other pieces of yours and connect with you? Yeah, um, my website is just nathanielherring.com. Uh, if you look up Nathan Herring, I'm also on SoundCloud, and uh, I would love to hear from anyone on on any other social media it's just under my nathan herring yeah cool wonderful <laughs> so this is medical text page 57 by nathan herring
mutation Uh, 
And the whole period of their existence is characterized by a series of actions. And reactions. Ever varying in your... of any part of the body at different epochs of its existence. Oh, the germs of life are intermixed the seeds of death. And however vigorous the growth of its fabric, however energetic the endowments of its maturity, we know that its days are numbered. Should escape destruction from causes that are accidental and external, it is sooner or later doomed to perish by the slow but unending operation of natural and internal causes, inseparable from its nature and coeval with its birth. Next is an interview with Becky Brown, and I think this was one of the last interviews I did, and it was after seeing her piece, Tomorrow When I Grow Up, on the final day of the festival. Becky is a composer, harpist, artist, and web designer interested in producing intensely personal works across the multimedia spectrum. 
Currently, she is pursuing a doctorate in composition at the University of Virginia, is the technical director of the Electroacoustic Barn Dance, and recently worked as a music technology specialist at the University of Richmond. Her music has been performed at Seamus, SCI National and Regional Festivals, Third Practice New Music Festival, Ball State New Music Festival, and in Beijing, China. Hold Still, her work for Live Art and Electronics, was released on the Seamus label in August 2017. She is a 2015 Music and Computer Science graduate of the University of Mary Washington, studying electroacoustic composition with Dr. Mark Snyder and harp performance with Dr. Grace Bowson. So I'm here with Becky Brown, and uh, earlier today we heard her piece, Tomorrow, When I Grow Up, uh, the first movement called The Empties. So uh, this is a piece for uh, live voice and electronics. Is there any is there any uh, processing, or um, is, it's just basically live voice and fixed media? There's very little processing. The only thing that happens is... Um about a third of the way through it, I slowly start putting in tape delay. Um, so in the beginning, it's really just uh, vocal, and then over time to kind of like contribute to the overall sense of unease and like frustration and confusion is like, let's just make it sound like you're, you know, basically as if I had um, like changed, I don't know, the buffer setting or something so that it feels to me like my voice is coming out at a different rate than I expect. Um, so this entire piece is basically meant to screw with me as a performer. <laughs> and I mean, what it, what is the piece about, um, like program, programmatically? It seems like it has it definitely has a, tra- a trajectory from beginning to end, where we're exploring kind of the psyche of the performer, or in this case, the composer. Yeah, both they're they're technically both the same person right now. Yeah. Um, so the piece was originally conceived of as a way of exploring lying um, because I had hit kind of a time in my life over the summer where I basically wasn't being honest with anyone. Um, It was not a very good time in my life and it felt horrible and it was one of those things where um, the more you do something like lying, the less you become like yourself. Um, So, you know, what is the strength of your word anymore? Who do you mean as a person? Because everything that you're doing is essentially false. Um, So... Um, the thing of, you know, the entire piece, I am repeating what I am saying in the tape. Um, and, um, as it's happening, it's kind of a thing of cause and effect of both, I feel like I am being forced to say things that aren't necessarily true. And also the things that I am slowly saying, like I am saying slowly devolve into like just absurdity. Like the end of it is just like to yeah. just be like language is completely devolved there's nothing like real anymore in any of these words so um but a lot of people find that it uh feels a lot like you know their depression or their their anxiety which makes a lot of sense because um, for me those things were definitely tied together yeah. pretty strongly mm-hmm. yeah when uh when i was listening to it i it, it almost seemed like you know it was a statement about maybe like the creative process or something like oh and some of the lines in that piece are i promise i'll get to it tomorrow i promise i'll finish or, or you know i'm of course i'm paraphrasing because <laughs> i've heard it once um <laughs> but uh but yeah it, it seemed like you were you were kind of uh it was a commentary on on your process but it seems like it was, it was about just like your life in general yeah Carter's here. 
Keep going. No, we're leaving this oh, in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Becky, <laughs> Becky's great. I don't think there was a question. That it is a statement on the creative process. Yeah. Um, so yes, in a way, more as like a that's kind of the surface layer thing yeah. of like a lot of the things that I was like. So there was kind of like two layers of what was going on on in my life. One of them was that I was not productive. Um, like I had things to do and by and large I was doing them, but I was doing them at like the last minute or beyond the last minute. Um, and then the other half of that is that uh, sort of those things that I was doing very poorly um, were emblematic of the fact that I felt terrible. Um, so there's some things that happen a little bit later on, um, like a lot of them are excuses, so like it only appears a couple times, but I'm alright, I'm just tired, um, yeah. as being kind of a frequent like... Um, Basically a lie you tell to kind of, you know, your friends or your family, just a any excuse to not kind of open up to them and tell them what's really going on, you know, and that's a lie that all of us tell all yeah. the time. Oh, what's wrong? Oh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. That's, yep. that's like everyone's favorite excuse for, for whatever is maybe going on in their life. Yeah. But then it kind of devolves. So there's other things that happen. Um, there's like a period before it just goes to straight syllables where, um, I think it's like, you know, please trust me. I believe in myself, those kinds of things to so like, you know, try and make someone believe you when you don't even believe in yourself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, it is, it is kind of about the creative process more in that, um, I was sort of as an artist experiencing this. So a lot of the things that I was falling apart on or like not doing, um, were involved in making art or like yeah. making art happen, that kinds of stuff. So there, I mean, you, you use this kind of like, uh, beep in the piece it, and it, it seems it's the vocal prompt, right? It's, it's the, and, and no matter if you are in the middle of a statement, uh, or not, you just have to re restart basically. And it was interesting. Um, right after the performance, I went to lunch with a couple other, um, people and we were talking about your piece and, um, someone said that it was interesting how, you know, it started out as that beep was a vocal prompt, but as you go through the piece, it almost kind of takes on a different role. Like it, it almost kind of seems like maybe a heart rate monitor or because it keeps getting faster and faster as you're like, as your stress level goes up or, or something like that, or as you get further and further from the place where you should be doing something and you keep, you know, putting it off, putting it off. And then you the anxiety gets, uh, um, higher and higher, right? I hadn't actually thought about that, but I guess it's true. Um, I purposely give myself a lot of time in the beginning, um, almost as kind of a, like that first section um, kind of has um, a good bit of space just so that it's like, you know, you're almost calmly saying it as an affirmation. Um, but then it slowly speeds up just because it kind of has to so that it keeps interrupting me. But that's a really cool observation. <laughs> and it wasn't even mine. It was, <laughs> I, I, I forget who said it, but a, a bunch of us were out and talking about it. So that's that's really interesting. So uh, when did you write this piece? Um, I did it 
September of 2017 was last year, right? Because mm -hmm. um, I kind of needed to. Um, I did it for the first time at uh, West Fork New Music Festival, which is something that Dan Eichenbaum does in um, uh, Fairmont State. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I'm remembering things. And that first version of the piece was um, pretty much just an exploration of the phrase, you know, um, I'll be better tomorrow, I promise. Um, but then, you know, in talking with a bunch of people, it was kind of like, well, you know, you should probably include some more things. Like, it's very strong emotionally on its own, but I don't think it says the things that you need it to. So it's basically every time I've performed it now, it's been different than the time right. before, um, which I have to do um, to a certain extent because I can't practice this piece. If I practice it, I'll remember it. Um, right, yeah. yeah. So, like every time, not every time, but most of the time, I have to make at least some changes so that, like, because it's supposed to distress me. Like, um, before I start playing it, I try and, like, do things to make myself more anxious. Like, I drank coffee this morning. I never do that. Um, to the point where, like, I, my heart is already going by the time I start. Um, but. That's really, that's really interesting that, you know, like, anxiety as part of the performance is, is really really something and and that it changes every time so you you are as a performer you're really just responding to what you hear and and trying to trying to react to it in the moment that's re that's really really interesting and this i mean this is the first movement uh, of multi move so how many movements are there and what are the other ones like um well i haven't written them yet because i kind of needed to give myself a lot of space after writing the first one to work on the second one um so I think what the second one is going to be is going to be um, an exploration of depression, but in the sense of like, you know, the hardest thing for you to do is get out of bed in the morning. Um, to have not the same, it's still going to play with repetition, but I think the second movement is going to be um, a little bit more active. So whereas this is just me responding to the tape, the second movement would be like, um, you know, the performer in order to advance the piece at all, there are buttons that you have to press. Right. Um, and until you do that, nothing can move. Um, now the trick is of course making that interesting, which, <laughs> you know, um, takes a bit, but um, I just kind of want this to be a series of sort of exploring like, you know, essentially mental health issues yeah. um, through electroacoustic music because I think that when this when this genre does it right it blows my mind yeah. um, and that's kind of what I want to do um, saying that with like as little ego as possible <laughs> um, but uh, and then the third movement like when I started writing this at first I thought you know the third movement is going to be like recovery question mark as in like you know what does getting better look like? Um, I'm not sure if that's what the third movement's going to be, because um, at first I was doing it to kind of say, like, you know, I don't want to just do this piece and then depress people. Like, I want there kind of to be a hopeful thing at right, the end. Light at the end of the um, but you know, maybe the light at the end of the tunnel is like another piece in a, in the program or something like that. So maybe this is exclusively an exploration. But I don't know. I'm an optimistic person, so. All right. <laughs> So before we go, can you tell uh, everyone, you know, what your, uh, where they can find you online, your website, where they can connect with you, social media, anything like that? Um, sure. It's mostly just through my website, which is becky-brown.org. Um, I think I have links to my social media there. I'm not super active on social media, <laughs> but those do exist. Cool. So we're going to listen to it now. This is Tomorrow, When I Grow Up, and the first movement is called The Empties by Becky Brown.
better tomorrow, I promise. I will be better tomorrow, I promise. I'll be better tomorrow, I promise. I will be better tomorrow, I promise. I'll be better tomorrow, I promise. I will be better tomorrow, I promise. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get it done. I will be better tomorrow, I promise. 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 I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get it done. I will be better tomorrow, I promise. I will be better tomorrow, I promise. Tomorrow I will be better, I promise. Tomorrow I will be better, I promise. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get it done. Tomorrow I will be better, I promise. Tomorrow I will be better, I promise. I won't forget this time. I won't forget this time. Tomorrow I will be better, I promise. Tomorrow I will be better, I promise. I'll be better. Tomorrow I promise I'll be better. Tomorrow I promise I'll be better. Tomorrow I promise Tomorrow I promise I'll be better. Tomorrow I promise I'll be better. Tomorrow I promise I'll be better. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get it done. Tomorrow I promise I'll be better. Tomorrow I promise I'll be better. I'm alright, I'm just tired. I'm alright, I'm just I'm alright. I'll better be. I promise. I'll better be, I promise. I'll better be, I promise. I'm going to get it done. Better be, I promise. I'll better be, I promise. I'll promise, I better be. I'll promise, I better be. Please trust me. Please trust I'll me. I'll promise, I better be. I'll promise, I'm I going to get it done. I'm going to get it done. I'll promise, I better be. I'll promise, I better be. I'm alright this time. I'm alright this time. I won't forget, I'm just tired. I won't forget, I'm just I will tired. be better tomorrow, I promise. I will be better tomorrow, I'll I promise. I better be. I'll promise, I better be. I'll promise, I'll promise tomorrow. I'll promise tomorrow. I'll promise tomorrow. I'm going to forget. I'll promise, I'll promise, promise to forget. I'll promise, I'll promise, I'll promise tomorrow. I'll promise to forget tomorrow. I'll promise tomorrow. I'll promise to forget. I'm going to forget. I'll promise tomorrow. I'll promise tomorrow. I'll promise tomorrow. Please trust me. I believe in myself. And it's tomorrow. Tomorrow I I believe in myself. I believe in myself. Tomorrow. Please forget me. Please forget me. I love you. I love you. Try to make me afraid of myself. Try to make me afraid. Monster tomorrow. Monster tomorrow. But I promise. But I promise feels more scared. like I'm supposed to be. Feels like I love I'm supposed you. to be. I promise yeah. tomorrow. Be tomorrow. happy with. Be happy with. I'll, pro I'll, pro I'll prom prom promise. 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 
Finally, we're going to hear an interview with Jacob Sudol. Jacob David Sudol writes intimate compositions that explore enigmatic phenomena, the inner nature of how we perceive sound, and novel connections between Eastern and Western musical cultures. He was awarded a Fulbright grant to teach at National Jiaotong University in Taiwan for the academic year of 2015-2016, and is currently an assistant professor of music technology and composition at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. All right, so I'm back with Jacob Sudol, and uh, good to see you. I think the last time was probably in Taiwan. Yeah, I think so. It's when you came back, when you came there for like the little giant performances. Or might have, did, was I in, did you come to Suzhou? I don't know, it doesn't matter. We, the last time we saw each other was definitely not on this continent. So, this is actually, uh, your piece is called A Darker Dawn, and it's for trumpet and live electronics. And it's actually the second piece that I'm featuring on this podcast, and the second piece at this festival that we're hearing that was written for, or, or in collaboration with, a Loadbang member. So you, your piece was written for Andy Kozar, correct? Yeah, that's right. He was coming out to um, Miami, and so we wrote a piece from him at his request. And what is, what is this piece about, A Darker Dawn? What does that title mean, and how are you kind of realizing it musically? Well, it's hard, because like titles are really, really difficult for me. It's like the first thing usually I come up with is the title, and then everything revolves around the title. Um, so with this piece, I think, you know, a lot of it was, I was dealing with issues of like, what's called like reverse culture shock when I wrote this piece. So I, I went to... You know, I, we were, in, you know, we met over in Asia because yeah, right. I, I was living over there in Taiwan, and you know, I go to Asia, and there's the culture shock of what it's like in Taiwan. And then uh, I was there for an entire year on a Fulbright, and then I came back to America, and it's like the reverse culture shock of what yep. it's like in America. And it's like that's happening to me right now. Yeah, it's it's brutal. I mean, it was worse than going to Asia. I mean, it was really, <laughs> really, really hard. Um, and it's like you know, you forget stupid things like you know, like like I'm in Miami, which is like this crazily diverse city but like you forget things like that there's like racial segregation in neighborhoods and it's like oh yeah that happened that, that's a thing <laughs> that's yeah. a thing oh my god um so, so you know um and it was a call also during like the election um you know yeah i won't say any more than that uh, so i was you know so i'm reading a lot of you know i was subscribing to magazines again in the u.s trying to be, be informed and you know i read a lot of literature and i was looking through like 
so many like books by Don DeLillo because I, lo I love his work and there's a sort of like he, he has this sort of sense of foreboding you know on, on in this sort of like impression of society which is like it's dark it's morbid but it's also kind of sardonic and kind of there's a sort of really dark undercurrent of humor from it all um, and so I was trying to find God I spent an exceeding amount of hours reading extra novels by him and flipping through pages trying to find titles or some text from one of his pieces and I don't know something about Dawn came up and I was like, yeah, this is a bit darker than, you know, <laughs> so, so I'll just call it a darker dawn. And it, it, it was, I used to joke to myself, it's a darker dawn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so trumpet and, and it's all, all, do all the sounds uh, emanate from the trumpet in some way? Is there anything fixed in this? There are a few fixed things. Yeah. There's like, um, there's a couple like, um, there's a couple of drone sounds, which are there's like this one dingsha, which is a Tibetan prayer bell, which has probably been in at least 20 of my pieces, <laughs> at the very least. And in one piece, it's heard like at least 5,000 in different variations. Um, but so, yeah, there's a couple of drones which are based on that just because I kind of am obsessed with that one sound. Uh, and then there's a couple other drones which are like super stupid simple. They're just Paul Stretch of, of a single note that he plays. Um, I think that happens twice in the piece. So, but besides that, everything's live. So what kinds of things are you doing live then with the electronics? Um, it's really pretty simple. I mean, I, I've been doing the same sorts of things for a while recently. Um, mostly I'm just doing, I, I do a lot of, a, I'm very fond of spectral splitting a sound. So to take the sound into different components and then spatialize those e sort of equally around the audience and then do spatialization of that sound in a way which, you know, is sort of, bit more complex but because the sound itself is split spatially you don't have the same issue of like um ha you don't have like the 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 Haas effect is minimized you know so you don't necessarily hear poorly in any section you hear sort of you hear inside of the trumpet you hear right. inside of the sound source no matter where you are so you constantly hear this sort of shifting perspective inside the instrument which is something i'm kind of into this sort of psychological psycho um, this sort of psychological examination of character of sound, which is sort of the darker dawn thing, this sort of character examination almost. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of that delays, you know, so like listening to your listening, you know. Um, what else is there? Uh, transpositions and... I like that, listening to your listening. Yeah. That's a, that's a weird way to, to think about it, but that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm obsessed with like finding ways to like listen to what you've heard and then listen to it again. So there's a lot of that sort of recontextualization. It's, for me, it's kind of a lot about like character. We spend so much time analyzing what we think about a situation. So to present sort of a musical context where that, where in which that happens is something that, um, yeah, is important to me. Yeah. So from what I know of your other works, uh, this piece has some similar elements and you, and you said you've, you've kind of been doing a, uh, a thing, you know, for a while musically, and that and that's kind of the pitch to noise continuum that you're exploring, and long drone textures. And from what I hear, uh, you know, the majority of the sound is coming from the live instrument in some way. So, what is most attractive to you about those particular techniques that you that you kind of keep exploring them? You know, actually, <laughs> I think for me, actually, what's I would say actually the thing that I'm, this this piece actually is it's a little bit different in what I'm exploring, which is a uh, literature sort of examination of literature and music. Like, and I'm actually I'm not really so much interested in the techniques so much themselves as sort of portrayal of character and sort of um, structuring of um, form in relationship 
often to examination of, of literary works. I mean, um, is it wrong for me to say I'm not so inspired by music these days? <laughs> no, no, not at all. The, I, when, when I was in China, like, that's what was happening with me. Like, I had, you know, I, I, I didn't care to listen to a lot of music because it wasn't, it wasn't uh, you know, uh, starting any ideas in me. You know, it wasn't inspiring me. So, yeah, I don't know. You know, you can you can not like music at the moment, even though that's well, what you're doing. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I love music. Don't get me wrong, but it's just. I mean, it's like I think for me, um, one of the things is like I, I, thinking of beauty, which is what I try. I try to make something beautiful. Why not? Uh, <laughs> um, or something at least I would enjoy. Um, how dare you? Yeah. You're at an electro concert or electro festival. Yeah. How dare you try to make something beautiful? Yeah, but I mean. For me, beautiful is something which is something that changes the way you hear or changes the way you think, you know. And, and I think, you know, thinking on other arts, music's for what it's worth. I mean, music is like, when it does it, it's really, really fucking good at it. If you don't mind my swearing, um, for emphasis. We, we have an explicit rating on iTunes, so it's fine. Yes. <laughs> good. <laughs> um, but, like, music, when it works, is really, really good at it. But I find music in general is typically not as... It doesn't work as often as a lot of other art forms do. And I think when, I, I love literature. I think I read a lot. I mean, my dad was an English professor, so I, I read a lot. And, and um, I think examination, understanding of self, of relationships between self, um, relationship between self and social environment is often better conveyed in literature. Um, or, so I've been, working, I've been working a lot on like in literature recently. And so this piece, yeah, there's sort of, I was trying to borrow some of sort of the Don DeLillo techniques of, of of material where there's sort of things build up and then they just stop you know there's this sort of like you know commentary that comes in like there's these sort of like trumpet peter evans type craziness which is in different contexts throughout and it's just almost like this sort of character portrayal the glissandi which at first sounds kind of sad and pathetic becomes this huge loud crazy thing mm -hmm. and then it just stops being that and then it's even more pathetic at the end <laughs> um, and then, you know, it's just, and then it becomes like this sort of like obsessive, like, you know, pathetic, you know, repetitive fashion wearing just the drones at the end. So I was thinking more sort of like the relationship of material in, 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 in relationship to the character or the relationship of one's personal reaction to a situation in the creation of this work, which has been a lot of my string pieces with Life Electronics were all based upon chapters from Tale of the Genji. Um, so it was dealing with very similar concerns in those pieces as well. Yeah. So on this recording, we're going to hear Andy Kozar. And uh, this is... Oh, and before we go, can you tell people, you know, where, uh, what's your website, where they can connect with you online, however that may be? Um, yeah, well, I think I'm the only Jacob Sudol, so um, that's, there's that, so you can Google. Um, I have jacobsudol.com, but I haven't updated it in a year or more, and I have way, the amount of things I need to put on there is daunting, so um, <laughs> there's that. So if you just search me, there's videos on YouTube. Um, also, I'm, I'm on SoundCloud, jacobdavidsudol.com. You can also find me on, on social media, so if you want to come by, step say hi. If you want, to, if you're curious in my work, you know, want to talk to me, you know, that's one of the best ways to do it too. Awesome. So this is a darker dawn, featuring Andy Kozar by Jacob Sudol.
Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.